episode of the Experto Crede podcast. I'm your host, Lee Silverberg, online editor, volume 106 of the Minnesota Law Review. Today, I'm very lucky to have a special podcast episode with Mr. Jasper L. Tran and Mr. David Gindler. Jasper is an alum of the University of Minnesota, and Mr. Gindler is a very, very valuable voice in the current topic we'll be talking about today. But because that topic is a little bit out there, I'm going to give Mr. Tran, and Mr. Gindler, some space to talk about it, kind of introduce it. So, Mr. Tran, Mr. Gindler, thank you for coming on today with me. Uh, it's it's truly our pleasure. You know, I was delighted when um, when we were asked to do this podcast episode because uh, I do have a connection to the University of Minnesota. My father is a graduate of the University of Minnesota, both as an undergraduate and as a and from the law school. Back when he went to school. Uh, you could go through both undergraduate and law school in six years. Not that that's terribly advisable, and I think my father would tell you that it was not terribly advisable, but that's what you could do back then. So, uh, so I'm truly delighted to be part of this uh, of this podcast. Yep, I uh, echo David. Um, I well, my father didn't go to University of Minnesota, but I, I myself went to University of Minnesota Law School. Um, and I also serve on Minnesota Law Review, so happy to be back um, in a different capacity and speak about um, exciting IP topics and COVID. We're lucky to have you all. So to get right into it a little bit, today we're going to be talking about, as you said, some topics related to IP and its intersection with COVID, especially relating to how the IP laws are dealing with vaccines versus small molecule pills, and everything that's going around with that. Before we get into that, I'd love to know a little bit about y'all, your practice, and Millbank, since I think that this is a fairly rare opportunity to talk to individuals who are practicing attorneys inside the private sector as opposed to the the halls of academia. So thank you for that opportunity. You know, I often say I have one of the world's best jobs. What do I mean by that? People pay me money to learn how things work. That strikes me as a uh, terrific job to have. So in the world of intellectual property, I get to work with um, uh, startups, large companies, universities, not-for-profit institutions, all of whom are trying to deal with cutting-edge technologies. One of the really fascinating parts of my job is we'll get hired to work on technologies which are going to be introduced next year or the year after. I get visibility into things that will dramatically change the way people get healthcare, the way people interact with technology. This is a remarkable opportunity, and I'm very grateful to have that at Millbank. We're not technology-centered in any particular field here. We work in, and that's a great benefit to my practice, uh, everything from life sciences, pharmaceuticals, um, um, electrical engineering, computer science, wireless technologies. We're sort of all over the map, and that makes our practice really rich and diverse. We also represent people on the plaintiff side, on the defense side. And I'm not just involved in litigation. I get to be involved in licensing discussions, um, often on behalf of universities who are licensing to for-profit institutions uh, their research, which is extremely gratifying. So this is work where I feel very privileged in many ways to be entrusted by whether it's a university, a startup, or a well-established company to help them deal with their IP rights. IP rights truly drive innovation in ways that many people don't see, but which uh, I'm lucky enough to actually have visibility into that. Jasper, what do you think? Yeah, I I agree with what David said. I would just emphasize one thing that David mentioned. I don't think it's uh, other law firms really have this. It's one of the things that differentiate us is that we represent a, a balanced mix of both plaintiffs and defendants. And you see a lot of big law firms represent mostly um, big corporate uh, corporate defendants, so that's kind of just you. If you want to litigate from the plaintiff side, um, you have a chance to do that here. 
And um, one other thing I mentioned that differentiate us from other law firms, and I said this with a slight chuckle, is that students might have heard of our name uh, being linked to a certain scale uh, related to a social compensation. Um, and that is law student, my firm, Milbank is the market leader in associate compensation, especially just less than a month ago. Um, we have been the first to raise associate salary four times in the past five years. Um, they do, our name is the Milbank scale. Um, and we've been quite intentional about, so maybe, you know, if we get into that a little bit, David can speak more about from the partnership perspective, it might pique interest of students. Pay scales are very important. Compensation is a very valuable part of the law school experience and something that students definitely need to learn about. I know that I, coming in, had no idea about any of it, so I think it's very valuable. To, to begin a little bit, so I appreciate you all giving an introduction about Millbank. How did you all end up in this area, in this field? Was it a direct route to this honestly very, very technical area of the law, but probably, as Mr. Gindler pointed out, a very fun and satisfying place to be? So I, all, I owe it all to the Los Angeles Dodgers. <clears throat> so um, uh, what's that connection? So, you know, I graduated from law school in 1984, just to date myself. And I was a litigator doing many different kinds of things for the first, you know, basically 12, 13 years of my practice. So I'm at a Dodger game in 1998, and I'm with a law school friend, um, who just took a job as general counsel of a nonprofit research center uh, in Southern California called City of Hope. And at the Dodger game, he very casually says to me, David, can you run a conflict check? Can you represent us? We may have a dispute with a big pharma company. And I said, okay, I'll run a conflict check. So I run a conflict check. We didn't have a dispute. We didn't have a, have a conflict. And so, uh, we got hired to get involved in a huge patent licensing dispute. This is all a matter of public record between City of Hope and a large biotech company called Genentech. Uh, that um, turned into a significant lawsuit, which we tried and uh, secured a very large uh, verdict. Um, it, at the time, it wound up being the largest verdict ever affirmed by the California Supreme Court. Um, we ultimately collected over $500 million for City of Hope. Uh, and that got me a little bit of attention. And then you get hired by other people who have technology issues. And then slowly, I got more involved in it. But I have to tell you that I was completely hooked in doing this area from the City of Hope case because I loved learning about technology and I loved being able to talk to jurors about technology and to teach it to them. One of the more memorable um, uh, days in court that I had was in that trial for City of Hope. I had to have a, I had one of the inventors of the patents at issue explain the technology which involves tricking E. coli into making human proteins by changing the DNA of the E. coli. And so, uh, the witness whose name was Arthur Riggs was on the stand and he had a Kleenex box. And in the Kleenex box, he had unspooled reel-to-reel tape. And I said, Dr. Riggs, what do you have there? He says, this is E. coli. I said, looks like a Kleenex box. He says, nope, this is E. coli. I said, does it look like a Kleenex box? He says, yeah, it's sort of, you know, sort of rectangular shape. And I said, so how did you actually do this little miracle of, of persuading uh, E. coli to make human insulin, which is basically what he did. He said, well, he reaches into the, into the Kleenex box, he pulls out a clump of the tape and says, this is sort of what, what the DNA looks like inside of E. coli. So how do we put human DNA in here? Well, we have to use a scissors, but you know, a regular scissors is a little big. We use a chemical scissors and we make a snippet in just the right place and we insert the human DNA into the E. coli DNA, there are chemical bonds we can do to repair the breaks. And then we put the, DNA, we put the E. coli back in a culture medium where it will grow. And all of a sudden, now I have E. coli that will do something for me. It will make human insulin. 
And the jurors were literally on the edge of their seats listening to this because it sounds like science fiction. And the ability to have a scientist explain really profound discoveries and tell it to jurors and have them understand it and appreciate the impact it had on society and on their own health, I was completely hooked. And that has been the focus of my practice. A lot of my practice is in life sciences, but not all of it. You know, I could provide many other stories like that, but it really tells you sort of how rewarding I find uh, what I do. Well, good. Uh, I'm a little bit different than David that I don't have that much experience in the field yet. I'm still a seventh-year associate, but I have a more traditional uh, IP litigation career path uh, in the sense that I have a science background and I heard about the right of inventors and invention in a chemistry class, which sparked my interest about IP law and led me to law school. And I pretty much focus mostly on IP classes in law school, in addition to the traditional doctrinal classes. I wrote my full papers on IP technology uh, law topics. I did two years of prosecution during law school, and I've always been passionate about IP law. Um, and I'm what people would call a legal nerd. I often share my thoughts on the current trends in legal scholarships and focusing on IP law and technology law and health law. Um, and I'm currently represent patent owners litigating two infringement matters against Tesla and Medtronic, both with uh, David as lead counsel. Right? Medtronic is headquartered in Minnesota, so uh, lost it in my apartment. Awesome. Well, thank you all so much for that. I really appreciate that background. To kind of get into it a little bit. So today we'll be talking about open source intellectual property and its impact on biotechnology. And generally all of this intersecting with COVID, this is a technical subject very clearly. And so I want to give you all the space to kind of situate us, you know, what is this actually in you know, layman's terms? What's going on? How should we understand this? So COVID is a virus, and we've known about viruses for quite a long time, and we learned quite a lot more of them um, at the turn of the century when we had the last pandemic. Viruses um, basically live to attach themselves to healthy cells, take them over, and replicate. That's what they do for a living. And to be able to replicate, they mutate, and that's what they do for a living. Some viruses don't mutate very much in ways that they are very susceptible to vaccines. Polio is an example. You can get the same vaccine today as you got, you know, 40, 50 years ago, because it doesn't mutate in the same kind of way. And then you have coronaviruses, which mutate a lot. When COVID struck, the question became, can we reach a vaccine? So the idea behind the two leading vaccines is a technology called mRNA. This technology didn't come along last Thursday. It wasn't like somebody um, sat around uh, a round table in January 2019 and said, uh, you know, what about mRNA? Do you think that might work as a vaccine? This platform had been well-developed and well-established. And when folks saw the pandemic hit, it's not as if people said, what shall we do? You know, two different companies decided to take very similar approaches. So, okay, what is mRNA? Well, mRNA is a byproduct of DNA. We all put a DNA, it's the blueprint of life. DNA is in your body and it codes for proteins. That's what DNA does. But how does DNA create a protein? Well, it first has to be uh, turned into what's called messenger RNA. Messenger RNA is the intermediate between DNA and getting a protein. And how does mRNA produce a protein? That's the magic of cells. Cells know how to do that. So what scientists did is they thought what we need to do for a vaccine is what all vaccines do. They provoke an immune response. The human body is extraordinary in its ability to fight off disease. The adaptive immune system is just remarkable. 
And so all vaccines are premised on the idea of provoking an immune response, but without harming the individual by provoking the immune response. So what did they do? What they did is they first actually sequenced uh, the coronavirus. That's actually really easy to do. You can buy desktop um, sequencers. You know, that was not the hard part. They had that done quickly. Then they have to decide, okay, so now what part of the coronavirus could we actually make a little copy of that will not be harmful to people and that will provoke an immune response? Well, the coronavirus has a very specific structure. It has these spike proteins on the top. And so they said, here's what we'll do. We'll simply create mRNA that codes for the spike protein. So you take the mRNA that's coded for the spike protein, you then put it in a little vessel, like a little nanoparticle. And there's a whole different set of technologies about how to make nanoparticles. Put it in nanoparticle, and then you inject it into a person. And then that goes into your human cell. Your human cell sees the mRNA and says, mRNA, I know what to do with that. It turns it into little copies of the spike protein which are completely harmless, but your body says, spike proteins, those don't belong here. I need to mount an immune response. And your body produces antibodies. And the same antibodies that will go and attack the spike protein will go and attack the coronavirus if it ever enters your bloodstream. And that is the magic of both the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines. So, you know, one of the leaders in this field is a woman named um, Kismekia Corbett, who was at the National Institutes of Health. And she rather matter-of-factly said, you think we can manufacture an mRNA vaccine to COVID? Her response, absolutely. And she was absolutely right. I would emphasize what David says that the mRNA technology and the nanoparticle technology, the tiny container that contains the the, the virus, the, the mRNA to inject into the human body. These two technologies, the very first time we ever use it in a vaccine. And that's what makes it really difficult for other people to replicate, um, even though the patent's already public. Kind of going off that. So that's honestly an extraordinary story and one that I think I was, I would say I was exposed to as I've listened to other work that you've had, Mr. Gindler, but also just kind of doing the research for this podcast. And I'm curious, where does the law come into this? Because clearly there's a complex system of scientific discoveries and development that goes on. But I imagine that that can't be too separated from the kind of work that you all do. You're exactly correct. So what drives innovation? Well, many things drive innovation. But intellectual property rights are designed to drive and reward innovation, and they do so in a very interesting way. So patents are a bargain. They're a bargain between um, our society, our government, and individual innovators. And here's the bargain. The bargain is, if you disclose every little thing about your invention, you cannot hold anything back. You have to disclose everything about it to allow any person who is skilled in your field of technology to replicate it. If you do that, and if the patent office decides that what you have come up with is different enough from what came in the past, we're going to give you a patent, which is the right to exclude others from using your invention. That's the only thing a patent does. A patent doesn't enable the patent holder to do anything. You always have the right to engage in business, to make whatever you want. A patent is the right to exclude. So you get essentially a monopoly on the use of your invention for 20 years from the date of the application in exchange for telling the world how you did it. And why is that an important bargain? Because then other scientists can look at your work and say, I can do better. And that is how, that is how science progresses. Everyone builds on everybody else. So how does that apply in this area? 
what drove the innovation behind mRNA technology? Research spurred by smart IP rights. That's been true from the dawn of the biotechnology era. What's important to keep in mind is that biotechnology companies understand this principle. They understand that innovation not just helps them, but competition is healthy. And what I've seen is that foundational patents in the biotechnology arena are not hoarded. They are broadly licensed. I can give you two examples which are remarkable. You know, Genentech was founded as the first biotechnology company. Uh, and they came up with foundational patents about how to express human proteins in bacteria, which they widely licensed to anybody who wanted it for products that did not compete with a Genentech product. You wanted a license, you can have one. The same thing is true for another technology that Genentech developed, which is a special kind of genetically engineered antibody. The patents were widely licensed to anybody that wants it, as long as you're not competing directly with a Genentech product. Everybody's got a license. Why is this good? It's good because it promotes the well-being of society. It's good because it advances science. So when I hear doomsday predictions that IP rights are going to crush uh, innovation and are going to uh, impaired the distribution of vaccines. That's basically not my experience in looking at the history of biotechnology. There are huge challenges to distributing a vaccine on a global basis. Huge challenges. But do you know whether patent rights have impaired that distribution mechanism? Not at all. Zero. There is no impact on patent rights in getting vaccines out. There are huge challenges to getting them out because they're not easy to manufacture and not easy to store. The vaccines are a special kind of drug called a biologic. mRNA is biological material. That is not the same thing as making Lipitor because Lipitor is a bunch of chemicals you put together. It's, uh, it's a much different manufacturing process. There's a lot of expertise that's required to scale up and manufacture was essentially a biologic, and then to put it into a little nanoparticle. That's not easy stuff to do. So it's remarkable, in my view, that smart scientists were able to come up with uh, the vaccine harnessing technology in the short period of time that they did. But a lot of this is driven by smart IP policy, which drove innovation to where it was to where we could turn around and change things. You know, that wasn't true in 1918 when we had a worldwide pandemic, um, which was very, very scary. And it was scary in ways that, um, that the current pandemic is not because we have the ability to prevent and I think soon the ability to treat. To sum up some of the points David said to add more colors into it is that um, when company license out their patents, they're really trying to recoup the research and development they put into um, coming up with the innovation. So that's, and company don't really exclude other in the sense that like they, they just stop them from doing a certain activities rather than they just collect um, royalties when the other people do it. So that's one distinction I think people really don't make when they, they hear these hand waiver discussion. And when David talks about the, the distribution issue with vaccines globally, he's talking about the manufacturing process that comes into uh, the issue with um, the lack of raw materials, um, supply chain uh, issue that's going on around the globe, um, lack of human resources uh, in terms of capable scientists of making the mRNA vaccines. Uh, we have limited manufacturing plants around the world uh, that are capable of these making these mRNA vaccines. And th those are the kind of issues that we see in the, the global distribution scheme. And I think that the pan waiver kind of just 
um, conflate a, a lot of that. And that, that's what David means when it, just, it doesn't really affect any of the distribution in the short term. So there seems to be a tension between the idea of open source technology and patent waivers and the ability of companies to recoup the costs of development. And if I understand you correctly, what you're saying is that that tension is not necessarily accurate to the way the real world is working right now, that the open source technology tension with IP rights isn't directly in tension at all, and that IP rights can be pro-competitive in many ways, as can open source technology. Am I understanding this correctly? You are, but let's not all drink the Kool-Aid just that quickly, because there is another side to this story. IP rights do promote competition and innovation, but there is a, a legitimate voice to be heard on the subject of, well, how much exclusivity should you get? So in the United States, if you come up with a new drug, you get certain regulatory exclusivity, even if you didn't have a patent at all. Patents sit on top of that and provide extra protection. And the question is, well, how much protection? Well, let me give you an example, a real world example that raises the question of, well, can you have too much IP protection? So the largest selling biologic product in the known universe, as far as I can tell, is a product called Humira, which treats certain autoimmune diseases. It is quite a remarkable drug. It's made by a company called AbbVie. There have been a number of companies wanting to make essentially a generic version of it. It's called a biosimilar, uh, but it's basically a generic. In the litigation over of, uh, the generic maker's desire to enter the market, AbbVie has come up with a huge number of patents that they say protect uh, the making uh, of Humera. I'm talking about over 50 patents. And people have stood back and said, well, how can that be? You know, 50 patents covering a single product? And that's because you have smart patent lawyers. So how can you get a whole bunch of patents on a single drug? Well, first you have a patent on the DNA sequence of the biologic. Then you have a patent on the method of introducing the DNA sequence into a host cell, which will express the, uh, the drug. Then you have a patent on the host cell itself. Then you have a patent on a method of culturing the host cell in a medium which will express the, uh, the drug. Then you have a method of administering the drug in a certain dose to treat a certain disease. And then you have a patent of administering the drug in a different dose to treat a different disease. I think I rattled off maybe eight or nine different potential patents on a biologic. I am not making this up. This is typical for what will go on in terms of patenting. So there's a policy voice to be heard in terms of, well, are you simply extending that monopoly for too long? And are you getting more than your fair share of the recoupment of the investment? This is a legitimate policy discussion. For many years, there wasn't even a generic pathway available for biologics. It didn't exist in the United States. If you wanted to make a, your own biologic, you had to start from scratch. So that law changed, actually, as part of what's called Obamacare. The Affordable Care Act actually created the generic pathway for biosimilars. So these are important policy discussions, and it's important for even for people like me who are IP enthusiasts. We see the benefit that innovation provides uh, when driven by IP rights. I also see the other side of it and understand and from a policy perspective, we have to have balance because we have to have uh, a meaningful return for investment. But we, there's a time when your exclusivity expires and then the price goes down. And that's how it should be. I agree with David. In, in some sense, IP do promote competition in the sense that if you're an inventor and it promotes, and if you have a protection on your invention, then it, it really helps you to come up with the next innovation. 
Um, the same thing as your competitor. You know, if, if they feel like their idea is being protected, then it it really encourages them to do more research and development, come up with more ideas. But if they don't have any protection around the ideas, they just uh, just going to stop innovating. Then they they get lazy and they're just like, what is the the point? There's no incentive in this area. So. IP itself, at the end of the day, does promote competition and innovation. Jumping off that point to something that Mr. Gindler brought up, which is the difference between biologics and other forms of medication via pills. I, for one, had no idea about all the differences that go into these two processes until I had a friend explain it to me, and I listened to a prior podcast Mr. Gindler had been on. If you could please you know, walk us through all the myriad of differences in a relatively concise way so that the listener understands that these are very different, the technologies are very different, and the law around them is just very different. Well, you can think of the world of medications as falling into two broad groups. I'm oversimplifying, but not by that much. So one group we'll call small molecule drugs. Think of those as pills. So it's, you know, everything from Lipitor to any other medication that's just a bunch of chemicals, which are put together into a pill form. They're called small molecules because they're small. Uh, and they have a certain pathway for approval. There is a second class of drugs, which are called biologics. Now, those drugs didn't even exist until the 1980s. That's what we mean by biotechnology. And biologics are drugs which are uh, made from biological material, and they are created by biological material. Let me give you um, uh, uh, let me give you a good example. So one kind of biologic is called a recombinant antibody. That is a genetically engineered antibody that is designed to treat a certain disease. It, the antibody does not exist in nature. Scientists try to come up with an antibody that will attack the root cause or something that promotes a disease state to try to cure the disease state. So what's an example? So an antibody that's specially created is... Um, goes through the following process. First, you come up with the DNA sequence for the antibody. Then you introduce that DNA sequence into a host cell. Um, uh, this may come across as sort of bizarre, but the a host cell of choice are Chinese hamster ovary cells. They just work really, really well. You introduce this DNA sequence, um, through, a, through a, um, a structure called a vector. It's actually typically a piece of bacteria into your host cell, often a Chinese hamster ovary cell. The cell then incorporates that DNA into its own DNA. And what do cells do for a living? They read the DNA and they produce what the DNA codes for. And now you've coded for your antibody, which doesn't exist in nature. And now you have a treatment for a disease that uh, using an antibody that didn't previously exist anywhere. What's an example? So um, there is a drug, a biologic called Herceptin. Herceptin treats a certain kind of breast cancer, which is called HER2 positive breast cancer. Some women who have breast cancer overexpress a hormone called HER2, H-E-R-2. That is very bad because what happens is that the hormone causes the cancer to multiply at an exponential rate, and it makes the cancer very deadly. What does Herceptin do? It basically tamps down the production of HER2. So it gives other cancer medications, the opportunity to work. Herceptin was literally a game changer for women who had HER2 positive breast cancer. 
that diagnosis before Herceptin was awful. It was awful. Today, Herceptin prolongs the life significantly of women who have HER2 positive breast cancer. That's an example of a biologic, a specially engineered antibody that's targeted to treat a specific aspect of a disease. There are many other examples. Humira is another example of a specially designed antibody. Biologics are different, not just because they're biological material, they're really, really hard to make. And let me tell you what I mean by that. An antibody actually has a three-dimensional structure. It actually looks, it's drawn in a cartoon like a Y. So it sort of looks a bit like a Y, but it actually has a three-dimensional structure. It's a thing that exists in, in your body. And it's not just getting the DNA sequence right. You know, it's a matter of having the antibody actually be expressed and fold in a certain way so that it can be effective. And there are companies which have tried and failed to make a generic version of an antibody that's been on the market for a really long time. Let me give you an example. There is a, another game-changing medication called Rituxan. It's used to treat non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and other diseases. Before Rituxan, getting a diagnosis of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, that was pretty bad. Uh, Rituxan can be, a, in many cases, a cure. Rituxan has been on the market for a really long time, and a number of companies applied to make a biosimilar version of it, a generic. One is a well-known, large, very sophisticated company based in Germany called Beringel Ingelheim. They are at the top of their game. And in order to get approval, you actually have to put your, uh, your uh, generic through clinical trials to show that it works just as well. It failed. They gave up. They just packed up their bags and said, we can't get it to work as well as as well as a rituxan made by Genentech. It's that hard. So just because you want to make one doesn't mean you can't make one. So the science and the technology behind making a biologic is much harder. That ties into why there's such challenges in making sure you can scale up manufacturing of the vaccines. These are not little pills. They are, it's mRNA. It's the building block of life. And so you're taking biological material. You have to store it at a certain temperature. It's got to be maintained in a little nanoparticle and it gets injected. So that gives you some visibility into just how complicated the processes are. This is why, for example, the price of a small molecule plummets the day the generic comes on the market. And I mean it plummets like by 99%, it drops down that fast. So biosimilars, the price goes down, but not by as much because it's really hard to make. It's not the same technology. It's not like this gearing up your factory to make you know, this chemical compound and that chemical compound. I'll tell you that one of the things though that's very, very promising about COVID cures is that Pfizer has developed a pill, and that's the beauty of it. It's a pill. It's a small molecule that you can take that has tremendous efficacy for uh, preventing severe disease. This has not been heralded as much as it should because this can be a game changer because you don't have to store it at anything. If this can get widely distributed such that if people get COVID, they can get this pill quickly. This can also be a path out. So that's another remarkable uh, innovation. And it shows how if it's a small molecule drug, that is a whole different world of distribution and manufacturing than, than an mRNA vaccine. I, I think David gave a very good overview of uh, the difference between a vaccine and a pill, pill and, and as to how you make it. 
uh, I do want to emphasize something because there, there's a practical consequence of this. So the know-hows on how to make a biologics or vaccines are very difficult. And that's that's kind of just why the patent waiver discussion really doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things. But the know-how for how to make a mo small molecules of pills is much easier. So companies really are concerned about patent waivers when it comes to making COVID pills because the moment they waive pills, generic companies can just copy it. And that, that's why you don't see the patent waiver discussion when it comes to COVID pills, uh, even though these are fairly newer. Um, so I think they're just focusing the debate on the, the wrong product. On the point of patent waivers, so for some background about me, I actually take a biologic for migraines, and it was a life-changing medication for me. I went from having many, many migraines a week to maybe two or three a month. Just absolutely changed how life works for me. So I get the idea that this is life-changing because it really can be. In terms of patent waiver, how does that sit in the mix between the creation of COVID pills and the biologic that I think everyone has kind of gotten used to in America as the way that we deal with COVID-19? Patent waivers are a very important topic. And I think they're an important topic for the following reason. I don't think COVID's going anywhere. We're going to get past the pandemic phase, but then we're going to be in an endemic phase. And it's not going to be for like the next three years. It's going to be around. And it may mutate, but hopefully not in a way that is deadly. So vaccines are going to be important to preventing outbreaks, to keeping people out of the hospital for, I think, many, many years. I think as a matter of policy, it will be important for patents not to stand in a way. And I think it would be very hard for large pharma to take any sort of position that would impair the distribution of vaccines for global health. Because I think there will be uh, blowback on a monumental scale. And I don't think you've heard a lot of hesitancy from large companies like Pfizer in terms of not having patents stand in the way. The question is, how do you go about doing that? And there are different schools of thought about how to do that. There is one school of thought that just wants to have an outright waiver. You just don't get to enforce your patent rights at all, period. That's one school of thought. It's a respectable school of thought. There are other schools of thought, which is, well, maybe patents should be put into a patent pool and licensed on uh, commercially reasonable terms so that no one's trying to make a lot of money off of this, but that there has to be a fair return. And then there are other proposals. I can't tell you which one is the best from a policy perspective. I might have my own personal views on that, but that's more of a policy issue than I think it is an IP issue. What I can tell you though is I'm pretty confident that no matter which side of the policy spectrum you live in, that large pharmaceutical companies are not going to let patents stand in the way of vaccinating the world. I think everyone wants to vaccinate the world. I think large pharma companies operated in, a, in responsible ways in developing a vaccine, ensuring that it was safe, and then ensuring that it was effective. I think Pfizer has demonstrated that it's very important for the vaccine to be not just safe, but efficacious. You probably read recently that they withdrew their current application to, uh, for their vaccine to be administered to children under five. So why is that? Is it unsafe for children under five? Nope. That's not what the data shows. The data showed not a significant benefit to the dosing. If they weren't getting a better outcome. And so they said, we need more and better data before we decide on dosing for children under five. Now, if big farmers wanted to make a bunch of money, they would have just said, you know what? We've got some pretty good data. Let's just go forward. But it wasn't good enough data. And so they voluntarily pulled it back and said, we need some more time, different dosing regimen. So I'm pretty confident that we're going to get through this. 
I'm pretty confident we're going to get through it because of smart scientists like Kizzy Corbett, who's sort of my hero, uh, to really get us through this to the other side. I agree with David, what's going on in the pan world. I, I think there's a sense that there's a, a weakening of pan rights in the past few decades, and pan should be stronger to encourage innovation in this field, COVID, mRNA, and nanotechnology. So not only that we get through this pandemic, when the next pandemic hit, we already have the technology available and start making the vaccines, making the pills, rather than we just stop protecting innovations and inventors' rights, which is kind of why I went to law school in the first place. To, to cap this off, I really appreciate all the learning I've been able to do throughout this podcast. I've learned so much about this topic just throughout this period of time. I'm, I'm curious, in the future, Mr. Gindler and Mr. Tran, you both mentioned that we're going to get through this, but of course, COVID is going to become possibly endemic or likely endemic, and we'll need to cope with it as the world changes to accommodate this new version of the world that we're living in. How do you see the law accommodating that? And where do you see the law going specifically related to treatment of COVID and the well, IP that goes I with it? If I had that kind of a crystal ball, I would be in a different business. But I can make some predictions, which is that the law will have to accommodate it. Uh, it's not an if, it's just a how. So how are we going to ensure that we can have broad distribution at reasonable prices or at no price where the government provides the subsidy as we have for COVID? There will have to be compromises that are made uh, in the IP world in order to ensure that you have the incentives for innovation, but that the incentives for innovation do not stand in the way of public health. That's going to be a very important conversation that's going to take place between Democrats, between Republicans. And the one thing that I think both Democrats and Republicans probably can agree upon is that drug prices need to be reasonable. People need to be able to have have access to important medications, whether it's vaccines or otherwise. And there's going to be policy discussion about the best way to get there. So I've given some examples of ways in which you could accommodate a global need for vaccine distribution. I can't tell you which way the policy debate is going to come out. I don't think patents are going to go away. They're important to drive innovation. But as I said, patents cannot stand in the way of public health. So there is going to be a policy resolution to this. How that plays out, I'm not 100% sure, except I think it's going to be a very interesting discussion. And it's one that we haven't had in this sort of way, because we haven't had this sort of global pandemic in like 100 years. Now, we got lucky this time because we had a lot of tools in our toolkit this time to sort of cut this off at the path. This was not true in 1918. I was reading a book uh, about the 1918 uh, influenza. It really hit in two stages. It started in the March-April timeframe of 1918, and it was called the three-day flu because it was a big sort of nothing. It was everywhere, but people got the flu for three days. And then they were all fine. And then it was fine until it wasn't. And then in September of 1918, basically all hell broke loose because it changed. And the influenza was virulent in ways that COVID is not. It killed. It killed aggressively. It killed people by causing them to bleed out. It killed them by compromising their lungs so they couldn't breathe and they died of pneumonia. Most of the people who died in the 1918 pandemic died in a 24-week period starting in September of 1918. Half of those people died in a three-month period. That tells you what happens when science is not on your side. They just didn't have the toolkit then. We have the toolkit now, and I'm pretty sure that wise public health officials and wise legislators will make sure 
that we get to use the toolkits in responsible ways to promote public health. I agree with David on two points he mentioned is that it's really hard to predict the future and drug prices in the near term is going to be the debate to make it more reasonable, not just COVID, but just other kind of drug prices overall too. There, there's no reason to just limit it to the COVID debate. And other related COVID topics that is going to be among the discussion is the Supreme Court reversal of the Biden's administration's vaccine mandates for federal employees that came down last year. I think that's still going to be an ongoing debate for a little while. And whether schools should require vaccinations, uh, same as private employers, or which are currently split, split as to the vaccine mandates. And when I say vaccine mandates, I mean including the booster or not. Um, and there's a lot of vaccine hes hesitancies when it comes to that, especially when it comes to the booster. I believe the stats are like what a third of people are, are vaccinated uh, as to the booster. Um, there's a mask mandate is still ongoing as to people should be wearing masks or not. And there's going to be a, current, uh, a soon to be debates about those mandates uh, when it comes to COVID pills, like should employer requiring their employees to taking COVID pills uh, when they get sick. I am hopeful that our society will be able to overcome all those points. And I really appreciate you all coming on today with me. This was incredibly informative. Thank you so much. It's truly our pleasure. Thank you for having us. Thank you. It was our pleasure and happy to be here. Thank you for listening to the Experto Crede podcast. All the opinions discussed in this podcast are the opinions solely of the authors and myself and do not reflect their institutions, nor do they reflect the opinions of the University of Minnesota, the University of Minnesota Law School, the Minnesota Law Review, or any other parties.